For several years, Mrs. H.T. Miller lived alone in a pleasant apartment, two rooms with kitchenette, in a remodeled brownstone near the East River. She was a widow. Mr. H.T. Miller had left a reasonable amount of insurance. Her, in her interests were narrow. She had no friends to speak of, and she rarely journeyed farther than the corner grocery. The only people in that house never seemed to notice her. Her clothes were matter-of-fact, her hair iron-gray, clipped and casually waved. She did not use cosmetics. Her features were plain and inconspicuous, and on her last birthday, she was 61. Her activities were seldom spontaneous. She kept the two rooms immaculate, smoked an occasional cigarette, prepared her own meals, and tended a canary. Then she met Miriam. Lightning recap. In Truman Capote's Miriam, a widow meets a little girl with impressive powers of persuasion. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. This is Short Story Short Podcast. I am Christy Baxter here today with Christopher J. Garcia, multi-Hugo award-winning editor. <laughs> Come down off your high horse, Chris. Um. <laughs> I also know, like, everybody and everybody's brother. So, like, just, just know that you, if you don't know me, you're nobody. Correct. Anyhow. <laughs> you, you can make fun of me, too, if you want. It's fine. <laughs> I don't make fun of people who are pretending to be me because they know what it's like. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Christy. Hey, hey, Christy. <laughs> Stop copying me. <laughs> Stop copying me. Which is oddly appropriate for today's short story choice, which is Truman Capote's Miriam. Let me start by saying this story here is proof that a great writer can write no matter what the genre is, because this is a straight up horror story. Yes, it is. Oh, it is. It is. Let me tell you, it is hot as uh, as one of my friends said, as the devil's butthole here. And I still got chills reading this story. It is. It is horror. Uh, if you got chills with this heat, you might want to go get tested. Um, <laughs> Is there something going around? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a swine flu because uh, <laughs> there are all these pigs all over the place. But yeah, what's great about this story is that I have this sort of notion of what Truman Capote is that is informed about having grown up in the late 70s, early 80s and having read a lot of his work in the 90s. Um, that I get this idea that he's very urbane, he's very uh, witty, there's a, a sense of time and place to his work that doesn't necessarily overlap with genre, but also doesn't seem to reject genre. Uh, if you look at, say, Breakfast at Tiffany's, wonderful story, uh, but it's very much of its time. Also, a lot more about hookers than I thought it would be when I first read it. Um, yes, when you've seen the film and that's your basis and the the basis for the film was that that song that came out called Breakfast of Tiffany's in uh, in the 90s. 
uh, you you don't really realize how much uh, sex work is uh, in Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's a it's a fun surprise. <laughs> yes, it is fun. Um, but here, what it is is he has taken this very very horror idea of what if I'm actually the devil inside me, more or less, and has started to play with it. In essence, this is Fight Club. <laughs> yeah, it's Fight Club except with a little girl instead of Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah, and what's incredible is that not only is this giving us a horror concept, but it is playing with all the little things within the traditional Capote milieu. Because, you know, <laughs> where we're given the first descriptions, it's in a pleasant apartment. Uh, in a remodeled brownstone near the East River, there is nowhere more Capote <laughs> than... Oh, yeah. I believe this would be the Upper East Side. <laughs> that is the Capoteist. I love using names to do things. <laughs> it is fun, isn't it? <laughs> it is. But what's great is that the way that Capote writes is so great. There are so many short story writers in the middle of the century, I call the 20th, that were doing really, really smart things with language. And you had people like Truman Capote. You had John Cheever, who we've covered. Uh, we had William Soroyan, who we're going to have to cover contractually. Um, <laughs> but you had, you know, just his... And again, Capote is a sentence writer. But Ooh, often... Mm, but I don't often, know. I feel it's paragraph. Often his sentences are paragraphs. Oh, you're really pushing it there. <laughs> you're really pushing it there. I don't know. All these, all these paragraphs seem to be multiple sentences, I feel like. Well, only if you recognize the period, which I do not. Um, <laughs> well, you're a man. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry, I couldn't help it. I couldn't Ooh. help it. <laughs> if I hadn't done that, I would have been up all night thinking about it so i'm glad i got that out of my system <laughs> oh i have so many things i could say but i don't want to get canceled <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's always so many things you could say but probably shouldn't yeah but what's great about his language is that it is very very pointed it is not quite staccato but it's getting there he's like right down the line from hemingway absolutely and he's Hemingway, except for not betting nurses. Well, maybe male nurses. But, <laughs> but he's also, like, playing with the idea of who he is as an author, often with his, in his characters, in little sort of snide bits against both himself and his critics. For example, Mrs. Miller flushed and shifted uncomfortably. You have such a large vocabulary for such a young girl. Obviously, that's the sort of thing that he's referencing because when he was younger, he was often criticized for that. And, you know, that sort of, you know, having that intelligence being raised in a world that was not that sort of intellectualism is really fascinating when you look at sort of the Truman Capote life story uh, before he got to 54. Truman Capote and I have more in common than anybody ever expected. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. <laughs> the number of times that I, in high school, was told, I, I hate to say it, but especially by guys, 
Stop using such big words. Uh, you know what? If I if someone uses a word that you don't know, you go look it up. It's not their responsibility to change for you. I'm not going to get down on your level. You need to come up to mine. Oh, oh okay. Don't hurt me. Um. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, if I'm going to hurt anybody, it's going to be going back in time and hitting high school boys. So don't, don't worry about it. You're fine. You're safe. Whew. Thank God. <laughs> there's, there's a lot here though, that really shows how Capote understood character, I think, better than almost any writer of the period, because he is able to give you what is in essence, two sides of the same coin and yet make each of them seem like they are distinct characters, even though they have the commonality of potentially <laughs> being the same thing. And I'll... You're saying a lot here that is stuff that had kind of just simmered in the back of my head, but hadn't really gotten to being a full reduction. If we're going to, for some reason, make my thought process into a cooking metaphor. And... So, like, yeah, I, I really, I really like how you say these. This two sides of the same coin. That's that I like. I really like that a lot. That that feels like that boils the story down very well. Well, great. Don't forget to rate and review. Uh, <laughs> we got our Patreon. <laughs> but yeah, it's a great. It's this idea that we see over and over again in horror that. You know, at first glance, I didn't think this was a horror film until I stopped and said, oh, wait, the structure of it is straight up. You know, it's that part of Rosemary's Baby where she goes to see the doctor and the doctor tells her she's crazy. Mm. And that, that realization, when it hit me, it's like, oh, yeah. But he only sort of plays with that in this sort of upper realm where we're just sort of given this wonderful little story that is, what's the best way to put it? Uh, Capote-esque, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Capote-esque. So, so far in the Capote Dictionary, we've got the Capoteist and Capote-esque. I like it. I like it. And, you know, when you get to the end, again, the very last line to me is one of those things where ambiguity is what I want and I got in exceptional amounts yes i mean it's the ambiguity of that just like you know last week was it yeah wow a whole week week. (laughs) where a week and oh only six days sorry (laughs) but it's that idea that you know if you strip away a lot of the context what you're left with is this one this question is is Who's the speaker, of course? But I think more importantly, is the speaker and the listener the same person? Yeah. And that is, you know, we're supposed to believe that, you know, it's all just in our head. And to me, what this is actually saying is that when we're sort of having that big reveal that, oh, it's all in her head. She still needs it. She still needs that, you know, that second ability to express parts of her that she's afraid have gone forever. Uh, Mm. And what I love about that is that is one of the great themes of things like Fight Club. It's actually a a main theme of a lot of postmodernist literature 
is this idea of the last night in the nursery. And that's here is that she has, you know, she feels like she is leaving, but she wants back into that time before and wants to hold on to that. And so she has created Miriam or has she? Or has she indeed? Yeah. I like what you said about the ambiguity because I feel like that is such a great tool for horror writers to use if they use it properly, if they use it effectively, if it's not just I don't feel like making up the details or I'm being coy with the reader in order to emotionally manipulate them, if it's actually kind of this, the, the way that he establishes this ambiguity, it's not just at the end. It doesn't just come at the end. We have different moments of it throughout, like when Mrs. Miller, Miriam, the first, uh, I don't know, uh, senior... <laughs> when she starts losing track of time and starts losing track of the hours and everything. There is that feeling that kind of transmits to the reader that you can empathize with and sympathize with when time seems to lose meaning or it is confusing. Like, Like when you fall asleep before it gets dark and you wake up after it's dark and you're like, wait a second, is it tomorrow? (laughs) that moment of feeling like that and she's living in that that's her existence as she's you know continuing on and then there's also these these sort of changes in atmosphere that almost like jerk the reader back and forth and around like when it seems like things are going to get better she actually has you know um, tuesday morning she woke up feeling better and then some really beautiful uh writing here Harsh slats of sunlight slanting through the Venetian blinds shed a disrupting light on her unwholesome fancies. Oh, Capote, what you doing to me? I love it. <laughs> and, and so you have this sort of like, oh, maybe everything's going to be okay after this darkness. But no, the darkness is going to be back. But that puts you in this really feeling of emotional ambiguity because you don't know. Yes, and I think one of the beautiful parts about Capote's writing is it plays not as directly as horror, because I've, I've been doing a lot of looking into how fantasy led to surrealism, led to postmodernism, and when you look at horror, what it is, the difference between horror and fantasy in my eyes is fantasy is a world where you are not disquieted necessarily by the changes in the world that allow your story that is impossible in our world to happen. In horror, it is you are repulsed by or you are terrified of the reality of that world that you are going into or the aspects of the world that are different from our own. You know, I paid a whole bunch of money to go to grad school and learn the exact thing that you just said off the cuff, so... (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to stop paying my student loans, damn it. (laughs) No, just transfer them to me. Um... (laughs) But here you see where Capote is able to hint at these elements that then sort of start to play through. Um, It was no spell-like compulsion that Mrs. Miller felt, but rather a curious passivity. She brought in the box, Miriam, the doll. Miriam curled up on the sofa, not troubling to remove her coat or beret, and watched disinterestedly as Mrs. Miller dropped the box and stood trembling, trying to catch her breath. That for a very, very, very simple image and a very, very simple moment, not necessarily a turning point even in the story, it kind of is, but not, not totally. He puts a whole 
lot of, by the way, you should be scared into that sentence, paragraph, line, moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got a lot from that moment of, especially with the curious passivity, I related that very much to that feeling when you're in a dream and you're just kind of going along with things, but you it's very confusing because things aren't as they seem or as they should be. And all of a sudden you're walking from like a doctor's office and then it somehow connects to a McDonald's or something. And then you, you're next thing you know, you're, you're whitewater rafting. Why? Like, and where's my Big Mac? So that kind of passivity that it feels like any second this could go very badly and I have no control over it. And the fact that he was able to just with those two words, curious passivity, inspire that feeling of being right on the edge of something that is going to be terrifying is just absolutely testament to his talent. I really, really think that this story is the type of story that more students should be approaching when you're approaching Capote, because, yeah, it is a little bit off to the side of most of his, like, the masterpieces we tend to associate with Truman Capote. But at the same time, it is him being, presenting you with the best of his writing ability because he's using tools that he doesn't always use. And I love when writers do that. It's like the, uh, the Jack London werewolf story or, uh, Steinbeck's version of less than zero, you know, the things that are different from the rest of their careers that I really, really like to see. Yeah, I really love this, this playing with, with language and ideas and, and genre that we don't get to see from other writers. I mean, Hemingway, he, to his credit, he found a shtick that worked and he pretty much kept to it because he was like, well, if it works, why change it? You know, if, if, if people like the Hemingway brand, which is essentially the main guy dies at the end, then why not? I, I want a t-shirt. I should make a t-shirt that's like Hemingway's face and it says the main guy dies at the end. But anyhow, um, enough about my, my wishes. So, but Capote was like, no, yeah, maybe I found some stuff that works, but that doesn't mean that other stuff might not work. So, you know, let's, let's play around and have fun. And I got very much that sense that he was having this kind of dark delight as he was writing this. I don't know, because I wasn't there, but I did get that kind of sense in the way that he played with language and the way that he played with this concept and stepping out of his little sandbox and into another sandbox that he doesn't normally stand in. I definitely got this sense of a writer having a really good time and that is another thing that makes it a delight to read i'm fawning all over capote people i don't know (laughs) actually to quote uh, a fictionalized version of ernest hemingway that actually applies one of the finest films of the past ever is called midnight in paris by woody allen uh before he became a monster no it was after he became a monster but still um uh And Ernest Hemingway says, quote, no subject is terrible if the story is true, if the prose is clear and honest, and it affirms courage and grace under pressure. If you replace grace under pressure with the world is strange and so am I, Mm -hmm. I think really that in many ways, that's what a lot of Capote's stories are saying, is that not everything is as it would be if, you know, the entire world was 
sort of static and regular. You know, Holly Golightly is the strange character in a world of normalcy. Uh, the grandmother in A Christmas Memory is that strange aspect in a world of normalcy. And here, he's taken, taken that to the extreme with Miriam. Uh, I think that <laughs> is the beauty of this story, is that it allows him to take a thread that, honestly, I didn't really see often until I started really getting into Capote, that it's there. And perhaps some of that is Capote's lifestyle, Perhaps some of that is his place in American letters at the time, because he was writing for the biggest markets at the time. But he was, it wasn't really until In Cold Blood that he was really taken seriously as a writer. Yeah, I, oh, I had this whole thing where I wasn't going to start every reply to you with, yeah, I, and <laughs> look what I just did. Look at what I just did. Well, Rome wasn't built in a day and my bad habits weren't vanquished in a day either. So. <laughs> <laughs> correct. <I> do, <laughs> that is the worst thing to be correct about him. <laughs> I do really appreciate how he looks to the people at the edges of society that other writers wouldn't see and I do think you're right that he is in this really uh, upper echelons of literary society but he's still able to see those people he's still able to empathize with them and to to create them essentially and I think that that has to be admired because that's something that could so easily be lost with the uh, the sort of you know rise in esteem. True, absolutely. And uh, if I if I could write like one writer, I think Truman Capote would be afraid of me. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got yeah, any more thoughts is, on this one? Oh. Just beautiful writing. I just really appreciated the beautiful writing. It was all very. This is this is the work of a professional. Uh, doing a, a damn fine job and taking pleasure in it. Are you talking about the story or this podcast? Both, obviously. <laughs> Obvi. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, what else was I going? I was going to say something and now it's gone. Thanks. Oh no, I'm sorry. You've outsmarted I, me again. <laughs> I said that. I de that definitely was totally my intention. Good. I'm glad I was successful in, in making your brain forget a thing with my mind rays. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Christy. Yes. What are we going to read next week? Next week, we are going to dip our toes back into magic realism with, I love this title. If a book is locked, there's probably a good reason for that, don't you think? By Helen Oyayemi. A story I have never read, an author I have never read. Ooh. Yeah, I think we're going to do a couple magic realisms because somebody told me to pick a, two stories and I was like, okay, then I'm going to make it a thing. And and so it's, we're going to be doing a little, little tiny magic realism streak. So, But this one, as soon as I saw the title, I was like, well, I don't have a choice. I have to pick that one just so that I can say that title. And I'm just, you know what? I'm going to be self-indulgent. I'm going to say it one more time. If a book is locked, there's probably a good reason for that, don't you think? Yeah. <sighs> I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, this has been Short Story. Short Podcast.
Batman. <laughs>